If you would, please open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel. Today we will be finishing up chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. As we saw in verses 11 and 12 of the first chapter of this book, grief can and does greatly interrupt us, and many times by surprise. Grief not only interrupts, though, it can and usually does abide on, remain, hang on. Sorrow is not merely a sad event, but a continuing process. Because grief can and does abide and hang on, there must be a way by which God's people can express it. And that's exactly what we're looking at today in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. How David deals with his abiding grief and sorrow for Saul and Jonathan, who have died in the horrific battle with the Philistines, the people of the Lord, many others have died and been driven from their homes and cities as a result of this battle. And also we read there, and the house of the Lord, referring to the state of the whole nation, because the whole nation is now leaderless, with territory lost and people running for their lives and their army in total disarray. Now remember, we said that grief often surprises us. Remember what just happened. It wasn't just about this battle. David had been rescued from actually participating in it, goes back to his town and finds it burnt and all the people gone. Horror of all horrors. He goes to the Lord, he asks for direction, and they find him in the middle of nowhere. The Amalekite raiders, they rescue all the people and get all their possessions back. They return back to Ziklag. Can you imagine the joy? And find out that Israel had just been defeated by the Philistines up north and that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Talk about a sequence of events. Now, we must come to this passage with some caution, however. This passage here where David expresses his lament. Because probably our first temptation is to psychologize it. And David is not leading a weekend seminar on how to cope with grief here. Though we're going to use much of what he does to approach it as God would have us. So first and foremost, let's remember not to try to transport or put David into our psychologized world. Instead, let's just go back and sit with him as he grieves and hear him as he grieves 
and try to understand him as he grieves. And the other warning I want to give is this is not easy to do. Because each and every one of us knows what this feels like to some degree. That's why we prayed the way we did all throughout this service. One of the reasons. We need God's courage to even approach this subject. Do we not? Many of you do. And I realize that. So, it's really important to let the Word of God now speak to our minds and our hearts. If we truly start to understand the context of David's own sorrow, we will be able, by God's grace, to better anchor our own hope where it should be anchored, and that's in Christ Jesus the Lord. So you see what God does here? He provides one of his people in his written word to go through stuff that I would guess is probably a lot more serious or hurting than most of us have experienced, but maybe not. So instead of immediately just ah, being blown away because we can't get outside of our own grief and sorrow, it lets us start by focusing on somebody else's to learn from. And that's really helpful. It still takes courage, though. It's very important to understand that in no way, shape, or form are Christians promised in the Bible that we will never again experience grief and sorrow. If that's your hope, or that's what you're living for, at some point you're going to find out it is actually an idol, and it will own you. It's also important to know that in no way, shape, or form are Christians promised in the Bible that a life without grief and sorrow is promised if we just have enough faith. It's also important to note that David does not express here an anger toward God for the death of his close friend, Jonathan. His theological foundation allows for his questions about how God works, and he does that in other places in, in the Bible, not here, and even why God allows certain things to happen. But he does not allow his anger to actually lift himself up and assume God's position, and that's what's really important. And that's true as he works through his grief and sorrow. In other words, David knows that God is God and he is not. So he does not try, try to or wish to change this arrangement. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. And I'll be reading from the ESV the English Standard Version. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. 
And he said it, or the bow, should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In verse 17, we read that David lamented with this lamentation. So, what is a lament or a lamentation? I asked myself that this week, and my pen stood there for a little bit. How, how do we express this? Well, what it is, it's a formal expression of grief or distress. One, and this is important, one that can be written, read, sung, learned, practiced, repeated, and passed on. This is different from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of grief like those we see in verses 11 and 12 here. What happened when those men and David heard that Saul and Jonathan had died in a battle that Israel had lost? They immediately wept and wailed and continued on until the evening, until they had no more strength to do it anymore. Okay, this... The lamentation, it's different from that kind of spontaneous, immediate outburst of grief. A lament is not any less sorrowful or sincere, but it is a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. It's an expression of thoughtful grief, which is why this is so important. This is something that not very many people know how to do today. Would you agree? 
And we will all be better off if we pay close attention to what David does and why he does it. You see, this is really God's much better answer to what we might call psychologized venting. Which the Bible does not unilaterally condone as an answer in itself. Because usually this psychologized venting that is so popular and has been in our culture as the answer contains more spewing than anything else. In a written lament, one cannot just vomit out feelings. as may occur more in our initial expression of grief. And this way to handle grief is not cold, it's not objective, it's not detached from the emotions of grief and sorrow either. Instead, it's a way to unite, to put together the intensity of those emotions but put it with the discipline of one's mind, which produces a more structured sorrow, a sort of authorized version of distress, a kind of coherent agony. Now right there, some of you are worried because your goal is, I want to get completely past this and never, ever sorrow again. So venting sounds like the only strategy that will do that. Get it all out. And then it will be over. And every one of you, every one of us, who has expressed grief like these men did in verse 11 and 12, knows that it doesn't guarantee it'll stay away from you for the rest of your life. True? How can you get rid of the ache of losing someone or some horrible situation when you can remember it? And it's still a part of your heart. This is important to understand. And this uniting of one's emotions, the intensity of that with the discipline of your mind will produce this more structured sorrow. So in a lament, the words are carefully selected and they're crafted to express the sense of loss in a close-to-heart type of way but yet to do that as fully and completely as possible. P.S. You do not have to be an English major in order to learn how to express a lament. There's no qualification. In other words, not only is is emotional grief expressed, when you read this lament, it was full of emotion. I guarantee you, the more you read it, and you understand the loss and the context, the more you can barely get through reading it. But it also is a reflective grief. 
The fact of the matter is that grief over someone or something dear that's lost, as we just said, will always be felt. A lamentation such as David's is a way to offer that grief up to God. Are you interested? It recognizes the sorrow involved and just what God desires. And what does he desire? He desires his people to offer up to him. Offer to him an expression of what's going on in words that convey our anguish and in images that picture our despair, and in written prayers that verbalize our dejection. Does that make sense? A lament does not deny that this ongoing grief is a part of us. But it also does not assume that it should control us forever either. It just recognizes the reality of it. Isn't God wonderful? He knows the reality. He made us. And when we buy the lie that it'll go away forever, we lose a part of our own heart. Or we try to. God recognizes the reality And he gives us a way to take it to him. This passage of time, as after the event or whatever it was, that passage of time lessens the acuteness of the sorrow. We know that. But the ache can always be with us. And it usually hits when you least expect it. See a lot of agreement on faces. It's special, or it should be, is it? Maybe we better say it like that. It's very special to you, it should be, that in places like Isaiah 53.3, the Savior The Savior is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with what? Grief. Who else understands our sorrow better than him, no matter what it is? No one. We usually have little difficulty taking our joys and victories to him in many kinds of praise, except for those of you a little more reserved and still worried about that. But what we do with our sorrow and grief is what? What do we do with our sorrow and grief? Shouldn't we also take it to the Lord? And in lamentations that unite the intensity of one's emotions with the discipline of one mind, Yeah, that's what it's here for. And this isn't the only place in the Bible. You realize this construction? It is everywhere. Everywhere. In verse 18, as we get into 
David's introduction of this lament, David said, well, he, and David said, he said, this lament, and actually the title there is Song of a Bow. You can see that probably in your notes, your references in your, in your text, which Jonathan gave to David back in 1 Samuel. That's what referring to in that bow. But this is the title of this lament. Now, why would he name this that? Well, it was Jonathan's bow, and Jonathan had given his bow to David in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, as a part of his recognition of David as God's next anointed king. What a connection. Jonathan's covenant promise to God was being expressed there, which was, in this case, a covenant to David. Here the king's own son recognized that God had chosen somebody else, not him, to be the next king. He was on his knees, grateful to God for his work. He went along with God's will, and he showed that by giving David and making a promise to David. He gave David his armor, and he made a promise to him. I remember those passages back there in 1 Samuel. Do you? David wants all the people then to learn this lament. He says he wants them to remember it, learn it, pass it on, sing it. Why? Isn't this personal? Well, in this case, not so much. First, he wanted them to remember it, to sing it, to learn it, to pass it on to their children and their children's children so that all Israel can continue her mourning and deal with that ache that he knows will be there as time goes on. And also, second, because David wants it to be a motivation for all the people, including the army. He knew this would not be the last time they would fight the Philistines. In fact, the greatest, one of the greatest things that happens when David becomes king is he does defeat him in God's power with his people. He wanted them all to remember this tragedy. He wanted them all to remember the pagan indifference to God so that they would all be deeply stirred and moved and ready for the next time. Does this sound familiar? Two history lessons. The same principle has been at work in recent history in the state of Israel. The Israel Armored Corps swear their oath of allegiance on top of Masada. Just west of the Dead Sea, where in 72 and 73 AD, 960 Jews held out against the Roman army for seven months. When the Romans finally breached the fortress at the very top of this mountain, they were denied the pleasure of Jewish blood since the defenders had committed suicide the night before. Masada then stands as a symbol of courage and Israeli troops stand on its summit to swear their oath of allegiance. Masada shall not fall again. 
I'm not sure this still happens, but I would almost bet on it. This was true a couple of decades ago. But we have something special, don't we? Except for you Okies, transplants. Texas has its own version of this that the whole world knows. Remember the Alamo, which Sam Houston used in 1836 to finally get it done. This is not unusual that David wants it passed on, but these two reasons go together. Now, we should recognize today that this kind of lament over tragic, the tragic state of any of God's people among friends, family, church, and any place around the world, it does something to us, or it should. It drives us as fellow believers to intercessory prayer when we hear the tragedies and the, and the sorrow and the grief of Christians anywhere close to us or anywhere far away. That should be our immediate response. When we carry with us the afflictions of fellow believers, we are moved to cry out to the Father on their behalf. We cannot usually pretend to enter into their distress directly. I don't know personally what it's like to be put in prison and starved to death because I claim that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And many other scenarios. But, to some degree, we can enter into their sadness and distress and allow it to drive us to seek heaven's help for them. See, if we, if we don't want to allow... If this feeling is like, I am never going to feel this again for anything or anybody, then we've just cut ourselves off from being used by God to intercede for fellow believers who are going through far much worse. So we cannot, if this belongs to the Lord, this heart, then we've got to allow the joy and the sorrow to be used by him for his purposes. And this is one way. So in verse 19, David introduces what he's lamenting. Your glory or your splendor, beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Grief itself is hard enough to deal with and hard enough to swallow, but it is aggravated even more if disgrace and shame are added to the mix, which they are here. This is what David laments in verses 20 and 21. He associates the shame he feels here with some different geographic places. You see what they are? Gath and Ashkelon, in verse 20, are two preeminent cities which represent all the rest of Philistia. And the mountains of Galboa, in verse 21, are the mountains where? Where Saul and Jonathan were slain. So this is a national disgrace, disgrace, disgrace of huge proportion. And it's made even worse as the news of Israel's defeat is, as we see here, rubbed in by it being proclaimed and heralded and celebrated everywhere there are Philistines by the daughters of the Philistines. Now see, the women's function in this was to be the singer's who make up the little ballads, you know, 
we defeated so-and-so, now their blood is in the dirt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's everywhere. The way the Philistine women will lead these cheers or trash talking in our lingo really gets to David. We can see that there. Why? Because what this means is that Israel's God will be subject to the same kind of derision and trash talking. It's not just the, the Jews that lost, it's God's in the mud. So you see, Israel's shame is not just military shame, but it's also religious. Another big reason David wants the lament taught to the people of Judah. Now, you notice where this is in this lament. Before this central portion, and after this central portion, David uses a form of address. By that I mean he's talking to something or someone. Um, In verse 20, he's talking to anybody in general. In verse 21, who's he talking to? The mountains of Gilboa. In verse 24, who's he talking to? The daughters of Israel. Verses 25 and 26, he's addressing Jonathan. But in David's central grateful description in verses 22 and 23, we see... David expressing gratitude as he offers several different descriptions of Jonathan and Saul. He describes them. These two verses are distinct because they are in the center. That's why I said they are central. They are descriptive. They say something about these two men. So right in the middle of this lament... We see David remembering and being grateful for Jonathan and Saul. Literary device, especially in Hebrew. It's in the middle. This is what it's moving up to, and this is where it comes from. But in David's central grateful description, look at it in verse 22 and 23, he tells of Jonathan And Saul's prowess in battle, in verse 22, the bow of Jonathan and the sword of Saul. Then he describes their character of life in the first part of verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. Notice here that David's deepest appreciation goes beyond their military skill and it rests instead on their personal character. Are you smiling? You're going, what personal character in Saul? I mean, how can he even, why is he he lamenting all this? Are you asking that? Yeah. Well, David graciously allows Jonathan's character to color Saul's at this point. It's called grace and remembering. His appreciation centers on Jonathan and Saul, what? Not being divided, not being separated, even in death. They died together on that mountain. Jonathan's friendship with David did not keep Jonathan from being loyal to his father or from standing beside him in the very end. And that's what David is recounting here. 
Now, everybody in here is parent, at least I hope so, said to you, you got to think of something good about everybody. There's something good in there. Okay. Yeah, we know that can be shaken. It's a good desire. And here, that's what, isn't that what David's doing? They, they died together, and this was mainly because of Jonathan's willingness to put up with his father. Trusting God. Only trusting God could he do that. And in verse 23, the end, they are described again as the warriors they were. Verse 23 at the end. Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. In other words, they la left a wake of destruction, even in being overwhelmed on that mountain. Incredible warriors. Don't miss the fact, we've already emphasized, that Jonathan was faithful to his calling. Even when that calling was unrewarded, and in terms today, hopeless. Yet, he was true to God, he was true to his friend David, and he was true to his wicked father. David does not deny in any way, then, the rest of this, or the whole thing, really, that the separation he and the people are experiencing is, is excruciating. He is not denying the excruciating pain and the ache. Verses 24 through 26 especially. In verse 24, David addresses the daughters of Israel, telling them to weep over Saul. In contrast to what the daughters of the Philistines were doing, which was what? Rejoicing over Israel's demise. But notice that while David told the women of Israel to weep for Saul, he then turns away to mourn for Jonathan alone. Key. Verses 25 and 26. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle... Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Using the word distressed here should help us understand that the more we love, the more we grieve. Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. Greater love means greater grief. How many songs have been written about I'm not going to love anymore because I just, it just hurts too much. And it's not just country songs. Now, I need to explain a few of these details. Saul may have given gifts of clothing and ornaments to his people, especially the rich ones who were in support of him. But Jonathan had made a covenant with David described as love extraordinary and surpassing the love of women and we're all trying not to make a face when we read that there is absolutely no hint of homosexuality here nothing instead this description is used in scripture to refer to covenantal loyalty this is demonstrated by Jonathan's commitment to David seeing and understanding that David was the one chosen by God to take the crown, and then determining to be faithful and loyal to David, no matter what, serving him, protecting him every way that he could. Matthew Henry writes, 
that this kind of covenantal love, quote, far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy, unquote. The comparison between Jonathan's love and a wife's love is not at the point of sexuality here. It's at the point of fidelity. And you look at the circumstances of Jonathan's fidelity to his promise to David all the way through his adult life. It faced so many more circumstances of life and death and horror than any marriage probably ever could. That's the point here. He's not lowering one to elevate the other. He's saying this is extraordinary, this kind of covenantal loyalty. And David's grief here is not pathological either. We throw that word a lot around a lot. Let's define what pathological is. Pathological is means an ex- extreme in a way that's not normal or that shows an illness or a mental problem. David's grief is not pathological. You can't write him off and go, oh, he was just you know, a musician, a poet. Yeah, he was a warrior. He put all that together. That's a pretty fiery mix. So, and, and besides, that's not normal anyway. So that's, you can't put it off to that. It's not a pathological grief. Back to something we've said. His grief, this grief, is just the normal, the normal reality that comes with caring and loving somebody or people. Or losing something precious. That's the normal reality. Some people opt to run from grief and the sorrow of possible loss, as we've said, by choosing not to love or to care. The resulting isolation can be and most probably is really a choice to be totally self-centered if you evaluate it. It's certainly not trusting God with moving your heart in the right direction. Proverbs 18.1 is one of my favorite proverbs. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Another way you could say that is whoever isolates himself pursues selfish desires. The end of that verse says he breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, you're going, yeah, but David alone mourned for Jonathan. Yeah, but it wasn't forever. He took time to mourn for his friend. But what did he do? He wrote about it and shared it with the whole country. The people he would be responsible for the people he would live with, the people who were close to him. And there's a lot of other reasons and justifications that people give for wanting to stay isolated when grief and sorrow and loss hit home. And I'm, I hope you heard that. They want to stay isolated. Because initially, that may be all you are able to even do. And there's no magic time frame here. What are some of these reasons and justifications? 
We may feel so bad we just can't even think about facing anything else, especially other people. That's the most obvious. We may feel like no one else has ever gone through anything like our grief before. We may feel like no one could ever do or say anything that would help. We may feel so completely empty that we can't even get up in the morning. We may feel overwhelmed by guilty thoughts of I could have or I should have. We may feel so down we know we cannot trust ourselves with or about anything. That's just the beginning of the list. Every one of you, some buttons were hit somewhere in there. Because that's why we're tempted to respond. Other consequences of isolation are quite frightening and actually very serious in many ways. Why? Because here's what it'll lead to if it isn't there already. Dangerous. There's nothing more dangerous in our lives as believers than this. Because we may think that we can be an island unto ourselves and be okay. Simon and Garfunkel were wrong. You cannot last as your own rock in your own island. Which is why we gather as a church. And why we covenant to each other, to belong to one another. And also, a frightening and serious consequence of isolation is because people think they don't need what God says they do need. That's the serious one. God makes it very plain. He made us to need other people and to give to them as an interchange. And God says what we do need is we need the people of God. We do need God. We need his word and his people to live and grow in his son. Thank and praise the Lord for giving his people a way to offer that grief up to God. By uniting the intensity of our emotions with the discipline of our mind in laments. I thoroughly expect every drugstore and bookstore in Amarillo to have their journals disappear by Tuesday. You're going, I'm not writing any of this down. Maybe you should. If you can't remember it, you have to. <laughs> Laments recognize the reality of our grief and then express that grief by telling God what's going on in us. And we can't say, well, but he knows what's going on in us. Come on, folks. We tell God what's going on in us in words that convey the anguish as well as you, best you can, in images that picture our despair, and in written prayers that verbalize our dejection, and there's plenty of examples in Scripture to use. If you can't figure out your own at some point, then start and stay with the ones in the Bible. They're everywhere. David closes his lamentation in verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. There is no suppression of David's anguish here. 
is there? Do you think that we need to prepare ourselves for such loss and the resulting grief and sorrow? How can we endure such sorrow unless we are convinced that behind it all stands a love from which we can never be separated? I'll tell you, you cannot face it without being convinced of the truth of what God says about he has you. So start there. With this passage, I'm going to read. We've all heard it, but it needs to become so much a part of us that it's just leaking out of us, our souls all the time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, O God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way you use your word to reach deep in our hearts like you tell us point blank in Hebrews to divide what's in there and let us understand what's going on. God, help us not to believe all the myths, lies, and fables that we hear in our culture about how to handle grief and sorrow. That We have you to go to. Our Savior knew sorrow and grief to a degree that we can't even fathom as the creation that he made that most of the people rejected, betrayed him, killed him. We can go to him. He understands. And we do not have to be afraid of the feelings. We can feel intensely and we can organize this in our heads so that we can express it to you and we can watch as you transform our hearts to appreciate what you teach us in those situations, but more than that, to, to see what you've done in your grace and people that we don't have anymore. What a blessing to know that you have done this in order to motivate us as well. To not believe the lie that we can live all boarded up, secluded, walled in, and never face anything that will ever hurt. But instead, we can learn to walk trusting you, embracing whatever you bring, knowing that you have a much greater purpose, and you're doing it because you love us. You know what's best for us, and we cannot argue with you about that. It's in that grace and the hope of Christ in whom you have placed us forever and ever, that we pray. In his name, amen. Would you please stand? And if you know this by now, let's say it together. Let me just...
rehearse it for you in case the grace of first the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Three things, isn't that amazing how hard it is to get three simple things. I'll say the grace and then let's start over with the grace. The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Just 